0: Good morning everyone. My name is Misty Denman and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team and so glad to be with you here this morning and good evening to my people at the West Campus as well. How many of you are so glad that winter seems to more or less be over and spring is finally here? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure about yesterday and today, but I feel like I hibernated most of the winter, and so my dog and I have been going out in the evenings, taking as many walks as we can on the nice evenings, and I love all of the seasons, but I particularly love the changing of the seasons, and so sort of like this time right now and then mid-October or so are my very, very favorite times of the year, and it's been so fun to see as we've gone out and walked like the that flaming yellow are the prosythia bushes, and the red buds are finally coming out, and just those few weeks where you get that New green color, the new leaves that come out on trees and bushes. Um, so that has been so fun. Anybody planning on planting anything this weekend, it looks like the weather's going to be nice. Yeah, I am dying to go and plant some flowers, although I've decided I'm only planting in pots this weekend because I'm not totally sure there won't be another freeze. And at least I can bring all those back in. So anyway, thanks, God, for new life and summer and, or spring, and summer will be here soon enough, and, um, and even a little bit of rain, which is a blessing. I certainly won't complain about that. Let's get started this morning. I love Psalm 135. It is this very stirring and rousing poem, psalm of praise and remembrance of who God is and just his might and how he's displayed his power and his faith to his people through all generations. Like several of the other psalms we've studied this semester, we don't know who wrote this, but we do know some really interesting things both about the psalm itself and the psalmist. It's believed that this Psalm 135 was used as part of the morning worship services at the temple in Jerusalem, and that tradition carries on even today in some Jewish services where Psalm 135 is recited before prayers of request are given on certain days of remembrance during their calendar year. Psalm 135 is also used today, recited in its entirety in some Eastern Orthodox churches in Slavic countries. And so I love, as I've studied it, that idea that these words have been used across centuries and across cultures even today. And that really um, amazing link that gives us to one another, um, to believers across time and through the world. What a big God we serve. I just love that. Psalm 135 is very unusual in that it is a mosaic, or I sort of like to think of it as a patchwork of other scripture. Every verse in, one, in Psalm 135 is either a direct quote or a very close solution to another part of scripture, either another psalm or one of the words of the prophets or the law. You'll notice today also as we um, study this psalm that it'll revisit several of the themes we've learned throughout the semester, and so it'll be a great reminder of some of the great truths we've already studied. I've wondered so much about this anonymous author as I've studied because we don't know who he was, we don't know his name, we don't know his family background, but I think we know this for sure about him. He was a man who knew and who loved the Word of God. He knew the word so well, he was able to piece together all these different parts of scripture and weave them into something new and beautiful and lovely, something that we still use today and it's very meaningful to us. And that could not have happened by accident. That could have only happened by the work of the Holy Spirit in and, and a man who knew and loved the Word and knew and loved his God and desired for those around him to know it and love it like he did. I cannot wait to meet this man in heaven. I've just thought about him so much um, and the legacy he left us in giving us this psalm. Well, let's look now at this Mosaic masterpiece. Open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. And let's begin reading in verses one through three. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is present. It, it is pleasant. As the psalm begins, we see for a call for God's people to praise. And as we studied the Psalms this semester, I began to really appreciate both sort of the directness of the Psalms and the beautiful and vivid word pictures that were given. Since about middle of second grade, I have been a avid reader, mostly of novels and nonfiction. I've never really been into poetry. In fact, I remember this poetry unit sometime in high school. I just could not wait to get done with. I've just, it's never been my thing. I've never totally gotten the author's point. It all seemed sort of just weird to me. If you were a poetry writer or a poetry lover, I should probably have lunch with you sometime so you can teach me to appreciate what you appreciate. But there's nothing um, ambiguous about the beginning of this psalm, this poem. Praise the Lord is straightforward, and even I can understand that. So on your outlines, worship God with wholehearted praise So as we look more closely at that opening statement, praise the Lord and those verses that follow, I think it's always good to ask ourselves the question, who or what is praise? Who is doing the praising? And how are we to do that praising? We've already studied several Psalms this semester. And so by now we're familiar with this format and the language of the category of Psalm that are called praises. But because it's always helpful to go back and review the meaning of word in scriptures, let's look more closely at that word. Praise. Praise is a verb, it's a call to action, and here it is speaking of the action of expressing approval, deepest admiration, acclaiming, exalting, making much of, and paying tribute to, all with the focus of the Lord. So, the response of our soul to the character of God is this offering up of grateful praise to Him. Praise the Lord both sets the tone for this psalm and permeates every line in it. God is showing himself to his people, and we know him to be good, and we praise him for it. As for the question of who is to do this praising, the psalmist exhorts the servants of God to lift up their voice to him, and he is speaking there to every believer from the most common man in the courts all the way up through the leadership of the church. It reminds me of earlier in the semester when we studied Psalm 103 and we learned that each of us is created by God to praise him. This is shown in this psalm as well. One way we worship and serve the Lord is to just set aside time each day to praise him. Sometimes I think of praise and of worship as something I only either do on Sunday or Thursday morning at church or during some grand and emotional time, but the truth is we can serve the Lord well and often by stopping every day in the midst of our just daily swirl of activity and choosing to praise Him, to focus our minds and our hearts on Him, on His many praiseable attribute, attributes, remembering Him, talking and singing to Him, living a life of thanksgiving and living as we learned in Psalm 118. Using the Psalms to praise God, writing down our praises, sharing them aloud like we do here, and simply just saying them to God in our hearts gives us an opportunity to do what we were created to do, and there is no other feeling like doing what we were made to do. In verse 3, we are told to sing to his name. That refers, of course, to the name of the Lord. I think it can be hard for us today to really understand this concept of singing or praising the Lord's name Today we give babies and kids names for lots of reasons. Sometimes I think we just choose them for how they sound. Sometimes just because we like them. I know with my two kids, one of them was named for his great-grandfather, and one of them we named just because we liked it, and that is great. But modern American baby naming is very different from how names were chosen in the Bible. In biblical times, one's name reflected some very essential truth about who that person was. Very different from it is today. I've noticed in the last few years, as I've read different things online or whatever, um, how strange some of the celebrity baby names are. And I think um, more than naming their kids after somebody in their family or just because they liked it, they try to be really unique and offbeat. So I googled some celebrity baby names of kids just in the last few years, and here are a few. Heavenly Harani Tiger Lily, Sage Moonblood, Moxie Crimefighter. These are real names of real babies. Diva Muffin and Fifi Trixie Bell. Okay, that one is so bad. That is like a poodle and not like a kid. And so if any of you do not like your name, take heart. It could be worse. I just was really shocked by some of those. In the scriptures, however, one's name, and particularly the name of the Lord, are deeply meaningful. God's name itself is the object of praise of love, of trust and devotion, because it's the very representation of who he is. We saw in the verses in our homework this week that the name of God is holy and powerful, a strong tower and a refuge. Look with me on your verse sheet at Exodus 3. This is the first time that God sort of introduces himself with his name to Moses. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So this conversation between Moses and God happens after God has heard the cries of the people um, and their oppression of slavery in Egypt. God chooses Moses to... Lead the people out of slavery, and he speaks to Moses out of this burning bush that doesn't burn up. God identifies himself as I am who I am, and by the way, in Hebrew, that is Yahweh, and that comes from a verb which means to be or to exist. So by calling himself, I am who I am, God is communicating several very essential truths about who he is. One is that he is self-existent. He is in no way dependent on anything or anyone for his existence. And alongside that is the fact that he is not bound by time and the way that we understand time. He also is communicating that he alone is the creator and the sustainer of everything that exists. And finally, he is communicating that he is unchanging. Look with me on your verse sheet at Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This verse, of course, speaks of Jesus, but he is part of the Trinity, God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit... All three parts of the Trinity have the exact same characteristics so that in the same way that Jesus is forever unchanging, God the Father is as well, and I praise him for that. There's just um, nothing else in our lives that is unchanging. Everything else changes, but God does not. Praise him for that. Each of these essential truths of God communicated in the name of I am who I am are reasons in and of themselves to worship and to praise the only one in all of creation who can be described in this way, holy creator, all-powerful, always unchanging. The name of God is deserving of our worship and worthy of our praise. So now that we've spent some time examining the character of God Let's look at some of the great things he has done for the people of Israel in this psalm. He shows himself to be mighty and powerful, willing and able to care for his people. Read along with me, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read all the way down to 14. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel." Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. God's love for and care for Jacob, for the nation of Israel, for all of his followers throughout history has always been based on who he is, and not on what any of us have done for him. Instead, God loves us and cares for us. Jesus died for us because of his great mercy and love. Look with me at Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Like Israel, we don't earn God's love by anything we've done. Look at Romans 5.8. But God shows us his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have time to study the life of Jacob today. I wish we did, but if you are interested in knowing more about the life of this fascinating man, jot down Genesis 25 through 35 on your notes and go back sometime and read his story. It is awesome. But here's the bottom line that we need to know about Jacob today his story is not one of wholehearted devotion to the Lord. He was not a man who, and who um, just gave everything he had to the Lord. He had many areas of mistakes. And that is the same truth with Israel and even with us. God did not choose Jacob or Israel to be his people because of their great accomplishments. He chose us. He chose them because he is rich in mercy. He wants to bless us and love us. It's all about his care and his loving kindness. And that is a reason to praise him and to build a life on remembering and responding to his sovereign care. The fact that it is the almighty and holy God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and majestic creator of all that exists, who has made a way himself to restore that broken fellowship with us, should fill us with humble gratitude, with adoration, and with praise. The Lord chose Jacob as his own possession, and he has chosen us as his own possession too. Praise the Lord. Look back again at verses 5 through 7. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Here the sovereignty of God is displayed in his control of nature. Whatever he does, he pleases on heaven and on earth, and that is everywhere. That means there is no circumstance and no place that is out of God's reach. There is no place and no circumstance that is too big for God to handle. Look with me at Daniel 4:35, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, "What have You done?" So, where is the will of God accomplished? It is accomplished everywhere. When we studied Psalm 33 several weeks ago, the author there also spoke of God's authority over over creation. And so when Israel sang those words and these words, they would have remembered well how God had parted the Red Sea when he led them out of Egypt. They were unharmed, and this revealed his authority over the natural world. And it wasn't just to show his power, but he had this purpose of delivering his chosen people from their oppression. When we look ahead at the New Testament, there's this other beautiful example of God's authority over nature, and it's told in both Matthew and Mark. Look with me at Matthew 8. And when he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, "What sort of man is this that even the winds and the, even the winds and sea obey him?" Jesus displays his divine authority when he calms this storm. And I can never um, help but, when I read this story, to remember that he has the power to control every storm in our own life, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual. Verse 6 says that whatever the Lord pleases, he does. You know, often when we hear a person described as doing whatever they please, it has this connotation of that person being selfish, of sort of putting their own needs before the needs of others. But that is not so with the Lord. With God, when he does whatever he pleases, it is different. When he does whatever he pleases, it is always the very best thing. It is that thing that could not be accomplished any other way remembering God's sovereign care and responding to it with trust and praise is the only response that makes sense in light of who God is. Let's look more closely now at verses 8 through 14. In these verses, the psalmist recounts these great moments in, in Israel's history. The way he describes these almost um, remind me of sort of like the highlight reel on a newscast. It's just the the big moments that you want to be reminded of, or some of them at least. These are times when God intervened on behalf of His people, so that they were delivered from Pharaoh and from slavery in Egypt. They were times of military victory that could have only happened because the Lord was on their side remembering that God had protected and provided for Israel and their past strengthens their faith for what they faced both presently and in the future. In our homework, we read the story of that 10th and final plague that God leveled against Pharaoh right before he let the people go. And that takes place in the book of Exodus. Later comes that unlikely, at least from the world's perspective, military victory of King Sihon and King Og, and that's in the book of Numbers. And those battles happen right before Israel is poised to go in and take that promised land. Let's stop for a minute and take a little aside here, a little detour before we get back to our story. When we read these types of stories in the Old Testament, there's a big question that can come up. And so let's talk about what that question is and what the answer to that is today. And that question is... How can a good God kill all those innocent people? How could a good God kill all those firstborn in Egypt? Or tell uh, Joshua and his people to go in and just wipe out everybody in these lands as they go in and take the land? It's a good question to ask and to answer, both for yourself um, and maybe so that you can talk to somebody else about it that has that question. The first thing to remember here is those people were not innocent. Since the time of Adam and Eve, all have fallen, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's really only by God's grace and mercy that any of us get to keep on living and breathing. But the fact is, too, that these were terribly corrupt and immoral people. These were people who practiced all sorts of just repugnant practices, all sorts of um, child sacrifice, just very blatant and rebellious practices. turning away from the living God. And throughout the Old Testament, God, even in their sin and their wretchedness, shows patience to them, giving them time to turn back to Him. But when they choose not to, there is a time where He takes them out. Also remember that there are times when, even in the midst of these very immoral people, Um, God is very merciful to take out those who are righteous. I think of Lot, and I think of Noah, and I think of Rahab and Joshua. So remember that he has been merciful to those who did um, show their righteousness and their belief in God. Also remember that God had promised his protection and love over the people of Israel and these surrounding nations that were so um, just debauched were really a threat to the people of Israel. Their cultures and practices always threatened to invade Israel, and Israel was always tempted to look at them and do what they did. I think even um, on Sunday morning, when Doug was talking about um, Elijah in 1 Kings, he compared them to a cancer, and that's very much what it seemed like to Remember that as God protected the nation of Israel, out of that nation comes Jesus. And because of Jesus' blood, we are all here today. So we get to see both God's compassion and love and his great justice and how he deals with these people. We can trust the character of God and know that the way he acted um, was good and he protected the people that loved him. Okay, so into that aside, and let's go back to our psalm. We had talked about um, God taking the people out of Israel, about these military victories that they had on the way to the promised land. And then we get to the book of Deuteronomy. And at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses is about to give the people the law. And before he does that, he gives this great stirring speech. And he had several purposes for that speech. But one of them was to strengthen the hearts and the courage of the people as they're going in to take that promised land. And so he gives them a recap of their recent history. And Moses says this to them in Deuteronomy 3. So this is that history that we learned about in these verses in Psalm 135. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Eldrai But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. Israel is going to need to trust God as they take possession of the land. As they go in to do that, they see these big obstacles in their path. The people that they would need to conquer were big. They had great military power. They're even described as having cities that were fortified to heaven. Israel would look at them and there would be fear of what might lie ahead of them there would be the thought that this is something too big for them to do. Can you relate to those feelings? I certainly can. Looking at a circumstance ahead of me and thinking there is no way this is possible. But remembering what God had already done for them on their behalf, remembering that God had done for them what only he could do, strengthened their faith, built up their courage, and in order for them to take that next step of faith, that next step of obedience to the Lord. And we need to trust God and his great doings and our next step of faith and act of obedience as well. And we can do that when we remember the great ways that he has acted on our behalf and our past. So how do we do that? I'm forever thinking that there is no possible way I'm going to forget somebody's great story of how prayer has been answered for their life or somebody's awesome praise that is said here today. But the truth is, I do forget, and a lot. One of my sons said to me recently, you forget a lot of things. And he was sort of concerned, and I said, when you have as many things to keep in your brain, you will understand, and you will forget too. And he totally looked at me like that was not going to happen. In 25 years, he will understand, and I'm going to just wait for that time, and I hope he remembers saying that to me. But my point really is this. We must find some way that works for us to record and remember what God has done in our life. Several weeks ago, Amy told us about a stone of remembrance that she keeps in her garden that commemorated a great time that God came through for her in her life. I have off and on for years kept a uh, gratitude journal where I just jot down things that I'm grateful for, um, things that I've seen God do in my life. I also have tried to off and on. Keep a journal of prayer requests and jot down beside those prayer requests an answered prayer so that I can go back and remember. I also have this little, um, just a little ceramic bowl on my bathroom counter that's full of these little tokens and remembrances that I'll pick up along the way to um, remember just some great moment between the Lord and I. And it is filled with the most random things. It has a few rocks in it, it has a piece of sea glass, it has. A piece of broken pottery I picked up um, on the river at a prayer retreat once. It even has a little vial of perfume that somebody from Women of the Word gave me that's called Amazing Grace. That just was a great moment between the Lord and I. And every morning when I am getting ready for the day, I see that little bowl and it fortifies me. It strengthens me. It reminds me of all of those times and places that God has shown up for me who has personally provided for me and there have been many times where that has given me the strength to do what I needed to do that day. So just find something that works for you. It can be anything but a way to record and to remember God's faithfulness in your life. Last week Lynn taught us um, from Psalm 91 that if we're going to combat fear we must choose to trust and wholly Uh, just trust wholly in God's love and protection. And so when I am bombarded with those what-ifs and those feelings of this situation I see out in front of me is too big for me, I first, of course, need to go to the Word of God. I need to soak myself in that. But then I also go back to those journals and my little bowl of trinkets and remember, I remember that our God is big. I remember that I can trust Him. For those who sang this Psalm 135 originally, it was the history of their own ancestors that they were remembering. And while there are a few smattering of believers in my own life, I don't have that family history of stories of faith that fortify me. But I have something really great and said and something that's available to all of us. And it is a treasure. I have great stories of the faith of other brothers and sisters in the Lord who have come before me. So in addition to God's Word, which of course we know is filled with awesome stories of faith, there are also some great books that I have fallen in love with, some biographies and autobiographies of believers who tell stories of amazing ways God has worked. Uh, I have a, just a few of them right here that I have read and loved. Um, and there's also a very short list on the bottom of your of your verse sheet of my very favorite books. Um, Biographies and autobiographies, um, mostly, I think they're missionaries, of um, just people who, I think, that person trusted the Lord. I want to trust the Lord like they did, And when they trusted lot God, I cannot believe what happened in their life. So it would be worth your time, if you are a reader at all, to just, um, in addition to always always, the um, stories in your word, just fortify your heart and your soul with these great stories of faith. So foremost, aloud the word of God, but also the faith of believers around you, stories we hear in this room, but also just those stories of believers who have come before us to strengthen you, to give you courage and to move your heart further along um, in your ability to believe God and how big he is. In retelling the history of God at work among his people, the psalmist has written so far in the past tense. But notice what happens as we move into verses 13 and 14. Your name, O Lord, endures forever, your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. He's moving from the past tense into the present and then into the future. Because this psalmist knows the mighty ways God has worked for him and for his people in the past and he knows that God does not change, he can say with confidence that God will care for him today and into the future as well. The character of God is solid ground that we can stand on. What God has done for his people in the past the way he has so faithfully been there, he will surely do today and in the future as well. Look with me at Psalm 52. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of the saints. When we remember God's sovereign care, we can respond to him and whatever it is that we face with confidence and with faith. Let's move on and read verses 15 through 21. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So on your outline, trust in God alone. So this description here of these powerless and lifeless idols that we read sort of seems like this direct contrast to the portrait of this holy and powerful God, and you wonder at first why the psalmist even includes this section here. It seems at first glance unrelated to the rest of the psalm. After all, this is a, a, a praise psalm, we're focused on the person of God, on meditating on who he is, but we remember with me your Old Testament history. Every nation surrounding Israel worshipped these false and lifeless pagan gods. It was only Israel who really knew the one true God. And as as Israel had witnessed the power of God on their behalf many times, but unfortunately, they had this tendency to turn from the holy God and turn towards these lifeless idols of the nations around them. This is a warning to a people who were prone to wander. And even though Israel had every reason on the planet to know and trust that living God, they still had this temptation to turn away from him. So I have this personal tendency, and I wonder if any of you share this with me, to um, like read those stories of when they turned away from God, and think about those ignorant, ignorant Israelites, and how on earth do you act like that? And how can you worship like the God of the frogs and this golden calf and this whatever that you've got? It seems so silly, given that you saw God in a pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. And who are you people? And how do you do this? But then I am always reminded, we are not so different. I am not so different from those Israelites. Even knowing what they knew, they still had that temptation to forget who the living God was. And I do it too. I wish it weren't true, but it is. Even having the whole scripture at hand, even knowing the great stories of God's might and his love, we sometimes take our eyes off of God and look instead at false sources of hope. As we've done In the semester, particularly I think of Psalm 33, let's take our own careful look at where we put our hope. Take some time today or sometime soon to ask yourself where you put your hope in other than in the Lord. Perhaps it might be worthwhile to spend some time in prayer asking God to show you if there are some areas maybe hidden in your life where you have some false idols, some places that you trust before you trust God that you might not even be aware of. Each of us has our own areas of weakness, and since we're prone to wonder, just like those Israelites, let's be brave and identify our own false gods. Let's confess to God those shortcomings, and let's ask him to turn our hearts wholly back towards him and him alone. We've spent some time this week studying his love, his might, and his sovereignty. And as we continue to meditate and look intently at who he is, we will notice that he becomes bigger and those idols become smaller. Look at 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10 with me. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and how to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of come. So this most glaring aspect of worthlessness in any idol is that it is powerless to save us from our sin only Jesus can do that. And I love this verse in First Thessalonians, that the evidence of these people's salvation is they had turned away from whatever their idols were and turned toward the Lord and his salvation. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites realized their sin and they turned back towards God, God had so much compassion for them and loving kindness, and he forgave them and he blessed them, and we can expect the same. Make a daily choice to hope in God and in God alone. The great British pastor and author Charles Spurgeon said this in response to 135. He said, do not only magnify the Lord because he is God, but study his character and his doings and thus render intelligent and appreciative praise. And that is what we have done this whole semester as we have studied the Psalms. Like the Israelites who sang this song of praise and remembrance of God's character and his great provision day and night, we can do the same. We have the great privilege of blessing God as we saw in the end of this psalm. Like those faithful who have come before us who have blessed God, we can worship him with our praises. We can remember the many ways he has cared for us and provided for us every day. And we can choose wholehearted trust in the living God. So pray with me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the privilege of gathering here together today. Thank you for the powerful ways you have worked in our lives every day. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. We trust you because you are worthy of our trust. Help us to trust you more. I ask for your blessing on everyone here today that we would go out in your name trusting you. It's in your holy son's name we pray. Amen.